0: If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles for you. Uh, They are on the the floor at the center of each aisle. Uh, Those Bibles are for you to take. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like to have one, we would love it if you would take that one with you. Uh, We'd love to follow up with you, talk to you about whatever you read there, um, explain anything that might be unclear, or at least uh, point you to something that can explain it to you. We'd love for you to take that Bible and, and to, uh, to make, it, make it part of your pursuit of Jesus if you're interested in Him this morning. This is our first, time, our first, uh, first section of a study that's going to carry us from now through the end of the year, a study through the Gospel of John. We talked about this last week as one of the great pieces in all of human literature. I mean, it's an incredible book. And we get straight into the thick of it in chapter 1. The passage we're going to look at this morning is a remarkable passage, it's iconic even. You could say it's as familiar as Christianity itself. One of the things that helps it that keeps it relevant after thousands of years is that this passage, like so much of John's book, gets at at the essential questions that really all of us are interested in. I don't care how philosophically you're wired up, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you like to read or don't like to read in your quiet moments in moments when the things that clutter your life are not on your radar or when you're disappointed enough with your life to not be distracted by those things anymore in those moments of clarity all of us have confronted questions like where did we come from why is there anything here at all how did we get here these questions aren't just philosophical either. They're deeply personal questions. Questions like, what is wrong with me? What, what hope do I have that I can be better than what I am? Who can I trust with problems that are too big for me? Those are not Christian questions. Those are everybody questions. And John puts Jesus at the center of those questions. John gives us Jesus as the answer to those questions. The passage we're going to look at this morning is, is remarkable because it is clear and mysterious at the same time. It is, it is simple and mind-boggling at the same time. It, in, a, in, in a way, it's a microcosm of everything that's in the book. It's been said of this book before that, that the book is safe enough for a child to wait in, and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. certainly true of this passage. It's almost, a, it's almost a poem. It's not quite a poem, but it's almost a poem. Much of the beauty of this passage is going to be lost to us because we're reading it in English. If we all had the ability to read it in the original language, we'd see a lot of the creative things he's doing with the language, the way he builds his sentences. is, is, is beautiful. What we have here is Key words and themes that are littered throughout the rest of the book. There's words like light and life, themes like acceptance of Jesus, rejection of Jesus, what it looks like to believe in Jesus. And, and this in this one area more than any other is where this prologue, this first section really stands in for the rest of the book. It poses to us, it poses to us two key questions. Yes, it introduces Jesus to us. It answers the question, who is Jesus? And in that sense, it's like any sort of biography. But the second question is not content to just tell us who he is. This passage also, like the rest of the book, confronts us with Jesus. It doesn't just tell us who he is because he's kind of an interesting historical figure. It confronts us with Jesus and forces a decision about Jesus, a decision that no person who has ever lived and heard his name since this book was written has ever failed to make. It's a, question, a choice that everyone makes one way or the other, a choice on which life and death hinge. This passage answers the question, who is Jesus, but also asks us, confronts us With another question, who is Jesus to you? Those are the two questions we want to unpack this morning. Who is Jesus from this passage, and who is Jesus to you? Now, one quick note before I read through the passage. What you're going to notice is that Jesus' name isn't used here. Instead, John uses the word, not a word, the word. He uses the word, word for Jesus. Now, you're going to have to take my word for it that it's an interchangeable thing with Jesus. That becomes clear later in the passage in, in a section that we're going to talk about next week. But people aren't exactly sure, experts aren't exactly sure what, why he cho- chooses to use the word word for Jesus. It's certainly, a, the, the word logos was very important in, in the Greek world. It was something that the Greek philosophers used as as a sort of key to the the goodness and meaning of life, you had to figure out logos. And if you could come to it, it's kind of like a, like wisdom almost. If you could grab hold of that, it's the key to a meaningful life. Maybe John is pulling on some of that. But more likely, what he's drawing from here when he uses word is the Old Testament background. So he knows he's writing to people who'd be familiar with the Old Testament. And all through the Old Testament, word, the word of the Lord comes through consistently and clearly as the thing by which God tells us who he is, as the thing by which God creates what isn't made. Think about Genesis 1 and the word that he speaks and the world comes into existence. And it is his word that comes with the hope of deliverance. It's by his word that he saves. I could give you a lot of examples. I won't for the sake of time, but it's all through the Old Testament. One writer compared the power of the word in the Old Testament and here to the, power of our words sometimes to create a new situation. You know, and if you're dating somebody and you get to that define the relationship part and one of you says the words, I love you. And those words are words in one sense, but they are also words that create something. All of a sudden, for good or ill, a new reality has been established. And similarly in the Old Testament, when God's word comes, it creates. It creates a new reality. And that's that's what he's drawing from here. Because here, God's creative power, God's clearest revelation of himself to his people, and his most full and complete act to save is not a word that he's spoken, but a word that takes on flesh, a word that is Jesus. Now, from, from here on, I'm going to use word and Jesus sort of interchangeably, but that's, that's where the word comes from. That's the background that you should have in your mind as we read through this passage together. Hopefully you found it by now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read from John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Hear the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's question number one. First five verses of John chapter one unfold the identity of Jesus and, and it unfolds in three steps that we want to take along with this writer this morning. Now, now, what a first reader of this passage. One of the ones who was the first to receive what John had written. Well, what they would have known immediately What they would have noticed is that these three steps in unfolding the identity of Jesus parallel another key passage in the Old Testament. Maybe you've already noticed it. They unfold like a parallel to the the first passage in the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 1, the story of God's creation of everything that is. And it's no accident that John writes this chapter to parallel that chapter. Other other gospel writers, you know, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that that four there are four accounts of Jesus' life. If you're not familiar with it, let me explain that to you. There's there's four different books at the beginning of what we call the New Testament that that are all different stories about Jesus, his life, his teachings, what he, why he matters. They're all a little bit different. They have different emphases. You know, um, they are his life is big enough to to accommodate several different, ta- uh, several different takes on his significance. And they sort of fill gaps that the others leave. And the other writers start either at the beginning of Jesus' life, even tracing him back through his, descent, through his ancestors, all the way back to, to Abraham or to, to, uh, to Adam. One of the writers starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where he first comes on the scene. But John starts earlier than any of them. John goes all the way back to creation. He takes us back even to before the beginning and he says Jesus is the reason there's something rather than nothing. Jesus is the only creator of everything that is and that makes him, here's the key, this is what we're unpacking today. Jesus is the only one who explains why there's something rather than nothing. He's the one who created everything that is and that means, here's where the rubber meets the road, that means that Jesus is the only one who has the power to redeem all that's gone wrong. The one who made us has the power to remake us. That's who Jesus is. Now, I want to I unfold that for you. Again, three steps we're going to take through this passage. The first one is this. The passage points us to Jesus as the only God. Who is Jesus? Verses 1 and 2 say, Jesus is the only God. That's the point of these first verses. The in the beginning open is no accident, as I've said. It's, a, it's basically a quote from the first verse in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, so far, people would have would have been fine reading this, right? They would have expected in the beginning God. Where they would get thrown off is in the beginning was the Word. What? The Word. Still would have been okay. Maybe the Word is just sort of a synonym here for God. In the begin- we're still saying in the beginning, God. But then they get to the next clause. Then they get the word was with God. Wait, wait. So something was there in the beginning that was with God but separate from God? Is that what you mean? What's that about? Then the kicker, the word was God. Whoa, now we're in a new reality, right? So there's something here at the beginning that's with God, so different from what we thought of as God, but that was God. Now we're fully in. We're net deep into the mystery of the Trinity, a mystery that we're not going to be able to unpack today. We're going to get some help on this through John as we continue to study. But try to put yourself in the position of the people who read this for the first time. Imagine what they would have been thinking as they think they're reading something familiar and then all of a sudden it takes a hard right turn. In the beginning was the Word who was with God, so he's, he's different somehow, but was God, so he's the same. And without, without having to unpack all of the, what the Trinity means, Here's the thing to claim out of these first couple of verses, just for our purposes today. Now, I, I get we're, we're we're in some we're in some very abstract territory here, right? It's going to be hard to grab onto this, so so bear with me. Here's the key: what we want to grab for is not just the claim that Jesus is God. That part is clear. The word was God, but something about what it means to be God, what it means in this verse. Remember that this verse is drawing from, from the Old Testament, from its stories and its prophecies and its poetry. And in the Old Testament, the background of this verse, what it means to be God is, is kind of what's pointed to here as well. And it, what it means to be God is that He is completely independent of everything else that we see and experience. And this is why it's hard for us to grasp, because we can't imagine something that isn't dependent on everything else. Like we, we've, everything we know in our experience is sort of interwoven and interdependent. Think about the circle of life, right? Everything that's here, are you thinking about that scene from The Lion King too? Isn't that a great, isn't there a song about that? Think about it. Everything depends on a whole biological sphere here. So there all this, well, we all depend on things that we eat, then we grow old, we die, we end up feeding the earth again, and, and so on and so forth. It's all one big loop. Nothing, we might be independent of each other in some sense, but we're certainly not independent altogether. All of us are subject to changes in our environment. We depend on the organic material for our survival. Other things depend on us. Ultimately, we age and we die and we return to the ground. But God is independent because He was there in the beginning. To be there in the beginning when everything that we experience started to be is to be independent from it, to be before it, outside of it, standing over it. Part of what it means to be God is simply to be. I know we're in abstract territory here. To some some extent, we can't cut through that. But stretch your minds here to understand this, this idea. To be God is just to be. There has never been a broader consensus than there is now that the things that we observe, the physical universe that we're part of, that includes everything that is, that that universe had a beginning. There's never been a broader consensus outside Christianity. The things that we observe are accelerating apart from each other at an incredible rate. The laws of cause and effect suggest there was a time where they were one. There was a time when they were not, when they came to be. Now, all of us, Christian or not Christian, can observe this fact. And it poses to us a question that we can't afford to escape. What we also observe in our experience, besides just the fact that things seem to have had a beginning, what we observe is that everything in our experience, invariably, everything that has a beginning... Has a cause. Everything that has a beginning, that came to be when it wasn't before, has a cause behind it. And so the question for you is what do you think stands outside of time? What do you think was there in the beginning? John's answer is that Jesus was there in the beginning. It takes us straight into the second thing about Christ that this passage unfolds for us. So who is Jesus? Well, he was God, which means he he just is. And he's outside of everything else that we know and above it. The second thing is really closely connected to this. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who made everything that is. He's the creator. Verse 3 points us there. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. I think there's a double negative in there somewhere, but... You get the point. All things were made through him. There's nothing that exists now that wasn't made by him. Jesus is the reason that there was a beginning. Everything exists by his will. Everything exists because Jesus decided that it would exist. Even the materials themselves were made by him, not just used by him. He's not the kind of creator that takes something and then makes something out of it. He is the creator who can be there before the beginning and speak. And there is something where there was nothing before now, the, the point to take from here is still, still pretty abstract, but here's the point. It comes a little bit closer to home. If Jesus is the reason there's something rather than nothing, if everything exists because he decided that it would because he made it, then Jesus exists over everything that is with absolute authority and power. There is nothing that doesn't fall under the sphere of his lordship. He looks at the world and he says, "Mine." Now, here's the final thing. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator, the only creator of everything that is. And here's the third thing. Jesus is the only redeemer. And this is where it really comes home. I feel like we start really abstract in this passage, but if we unpack its details, we get a little bit further to home, the further in we get. This is where it comes home for, for me. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now we're still, in verses 4 and 5, we're still in a parallel to that Genesis chapter 1 that I've been referring to over and over again. But here is where the parallel brings brings us f- into the reality that nothing is idealistic in this picture of Jesus. At its core, it is it is reali- a realistic take on the world as a place where things have gone horribly wrong. John says that in him was life and that life was light. So what we need to know is what does he mean by life here and what is the connection between life and light? The, ho- the whole ballgame rests on this connection. I mean, our first reading, it could look like what he means here is the same thing he means in verse 3, that The reason anything has life is Jesus. Everything that lives lives because of him. In him was life. And that would certainly be true. That's what he said in verse 3. But I think he's saying something more here. He's taking another step here. Life here is more than just biological life, it's more than just breath. The connection to light and light's connection to darkness points us to what John means here. When he says that in him was life and that life was light and that the light was a light that darkness couldn't overpower, that's where the key comes in. That's how we know what he means. Whatever this life is, it's like light in a dark place. A light that darkness can't put out. And here's what you need to know. Here's what we'll see as we get further and further into John. Darkness in John is a very loaded term it's a broad category for him that includes everything that's evil that includes ignorance and rebellion suffering and oppression and depression and everything that's wrong with the world under sin and satan and the curse of death that's what he means by darkness It's all the things that we do and all the things that happen to us that assault our quality of life and the quality of life of other people. And the claim here is that in this darkness, Jesus is the light, that the light he brings is the kind of life that isn't defined by the darkness that all of us have tasted too well, right? We know what darkness means. The promise here is that Christ comes into it as a light that the darkness we've tasted cannot overpower. Here's the key. His is a light in the darkness that the darkness can't overcome. Because this light, don't miss this, this is the key. This light that Jesus represents, this giver of new light, is the maker and only ruler of all that is. He is the one true God that was there in the beginning. So now you see how the passage builds. If He is God, the one from the beginning, if He is the reason that there is anything, that He created all that exists and stands above it with authority and power, then he is the only one we can trust to set to rights all the things that have gone wrong. That he is God. That he is the creator is the reason that he can be a light that the darkness can't overcome. I want to I park here for just a minute and make sure this is clear. There's a huge connection here. All of Christianity's hope rests on the fact that Jesus is something that isn't like us, that's outside of us, above us, that comes to us, comes into our world with a power that's not of our world. Think about the difference between Batman and Thor (laughs) as heroes. So Batman is just a rich guy with a lot of really cool stuff that he's learned how to use well. He's leveraging the world that he's a part of and its resources. For the good of mankind, or whatever. Four comes from outside of the world, with a power that's not of this world. Maybe another another example will help better. <laughs> Think tomorrow is uh, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? It's a time when we celebrate in our country uh, this man who's incredible in so many ways, whose work did a lot to push back darkness. It's worth our celebrating. He inspired us. He, through his methods, brought about in a nonviolent way a dramatic change in our social values and the way that those values get put into laws. He was a figurehead for that big movement. But Martin Luther King was a man, right? He was part of our world. He was great in his way, but he was still of us. And in that sense, Martin Luther King didn't do anything for your depression. Martin Luther King offers you nothing in your substance abuse. He can't do anything about your broken family. He can't do anything to help you live with your longing to be married. Martin Luther King can't do anything that will keep you from dying because ultimately he died. Now, he's a certain kind of hero. But he's a hero who's of this world and therefore there is a low ceiling on how much darkness he has the power to push back. But Christ is the one who was there in the beginning. Jesus is the one who made everything that exists. And as the light who shines in the darkness, he is a power that darkness can't overcome. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts this. Comparing these verses to the creation story in Genesis. He says the word challenged the darkness before creation. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. God speaks let there be light into that darkness. And there is light. And now that word challenges the darkness that is found tragically within creation itself. The darkness in our lives. You fill in the blank. You know what it means the word is bringing into being the new creation in which God says once more, let there be light. Now, whatever, wherever and however you experience darkness today, here's what you should hear. What you should hear in verses four and five is that no matter how it seems to you, your darkness is, is a darkness that cannot overcome Jesus. The one who made us has the power to remake us, to make all things new. He has the power to renovate, to recreate our quality of life now and to give us a life that the grave can't cut short. He has the power to give us a life that isn't threatened by evil, by loss, by the dissatisfactions of this world. So your darkness, whatever it is, doesn't have to be final. That's the promise of these verses. That's the real world value of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who can make you new. Now, so far, so good. right? We, we're still being told about Jesus more than confronted with him at this point. We're still in the realm of the typical biography, presenting a series of facts. But John wants much more than this. Remember, we talked about this last week, if you were here last week. John is about much more than just telling you some interesting things about Jesus. He wants to confront you with Jesus and to force you to make a decision, not just about who he is, a sort of historical conclusion, but to make make a choice upon which your whole life hinges. Who is Jesus to you? Verses 6 to 13 focus on the importance of seeing the light, not of not missing the light, of receiving Him when you see Him. Some say this reference to John the Baptist in, the, in verses 6 to 8, it seems kind of thrown in, you know? Like we're just reading about the word and then in the middle of it we, all of a sudden we're talking about John and then we're back to talking about the word and the light again. But that actually the reason it's put there was to correct people who maybe thought they'd mistaken that John, for the real light, they were maybe followers of John who never got on board with Jesus who were still thinking John was some sort of Messiah who could save them. When John is, John is a lot more Batman than he is Thor. He was a witness to the light. What he did was great and he was a witness to the light so that people could believe but he was not the light. It raises this issue that John's going to be dealing with all along. Don't mistake the true light. Don't miss out on Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Verses, verses 9 to 13 really drive it home though. Here's, here's the thing. What sort of choice is John posing to us here? Make sure you don't miss this. This is not a choice between having religion and not having religion. The choice Jesus confronts us with is not between religion or no religion. It's between where our religious devotion is going to be planted. Here's what I mean by that. John claims that Jesus was the true light, which enlightens everyone. That some people didn't see him as the true light. But there is no one who doesn't look for light. Remember that what we've been saying that light means here? It's against the darkness. If darkness is all that's messed up in our world, all that's wrong in us and out there, then light is the opposite of that. Light is to set things right, it's to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to have hope and joy and freedom. Everybody's looking for that. Everybody wants to be good and to have good. Everyone's looking for light. And what John is saying is that Jesus was the true light coming into the world. Not true in the sense that other things are false. True in the sense that he's the genuine article where other things are just a reflection of him. True in the sense that the sun is the source of light. The moon is a pale reflection of that light. Still light, but not the true light. Verse 9's claim is that Jesus is the genuine article. But verse 11 is a cautionary tale. He came to his own, the people that he created, the people who should have been looking for him. And even his own did not receive him. Those who did not receive him preferred to seek light and life in other places. And John's gospel is full of examples of that. People who look for light in their own performance and their ability, ability to obey laws They look for light in their own wealth. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that? They look for light in their race and its qualities or in their power. And it isn't surprising if those things are light to you that Jesus would seem distasteful. If the things you're looking for to provide light and darkness are things like your performance, how much money you have, how much power you have, how much better you are than the other people around you, then it's not surprising that Jesus would seem distasteful to you like it did to so many that are recorded in John. Because Jesus had no wealth, and he had no power, and he had no beauty that we should look upon him with favor. It's what the prophets predicted and it's what his story bears out. Think of the many things that we look to for hope and happiness, for light and life. And on so many counts, Jesus had none of it. And in fact, choosing Jesus, accepting Him rather than rejecting Him, to receive Him, could often, has often, will often, even today, cost you. The things to which so many people look for light and life. Today, right now, Christians of Muslim background are being cost all the things that they've been told their whole lives are the key to a meaningful life. In Syria, this last year, the number of martyrs in that country alone, in that one country in twenty thirteen. They had as many martyrs as were had across the entire globe in 2012. Even here in Nashville, we've heard stories of people converting from that background and losing their family. Maybe you'll be rejected at school. Whether you are in elementary school, middle school, and graduate school. The values of Christ will not line up with the values of those you go to school with. That's in different ways for different levels of schooling, but it's true for all of you. Receiving Jesus could mean being rejected by the people you deep down want to impress, want to be part of. Ultimately, given, given shifts in, in our wider society, identifying with Jesus, with Jesus' claim on our life, with the things his lordship calls us to, could end up costing all of us a lot in the not-too-distant future. America has been a place where it's easy to identify with him, where you could actually get more of the things that you're looking for because you identify with him. But that day is passing. For some, receiving Jesus has meant losing out on the things they thought would bring them light and life before. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing. What this passage promises is that for those who do receive Him, for those who do receive Jesus, there comes the promise of another insider status that more than counters for the rejection of the world. To those who do receive Him, John tells us in verse 12, He gives the right to become children of God. To be rejected by the world is to be accepted into the family that time and death will not take away, into the family where light and life are the basic currency. This promise is the key to restoring all that's been broken, to living now the life that won't be cut off at our death. The key to it all is our acceptance as children of God as children to whom God devotes his unmatched power to caring for, to lifting up, to holding up, to preserving, to satisfying. I love the way the verse reads, he gives us the right of heirs. That's a new legal status. All that is his is now ours if we receive Jesus. And connecting with this, with this new insider status, that you belong to him even when everyone else may reject you, that is the key to pushing back darkness now while we wait for new creation once and for all. There's the nature of the choice here. Who is Jesus to you? That is a choice between where you're going to find light and life. Are you going to find it out there or are you going to find it with him? Can't have both, Jesus himself says. Nobody can serve two masters. Who is Jesus to you? And here's the last thing. I want to close with this. This is the last thing that the that the passage points us to. It gets at not just the nature of the choice between sources of light and life, but how that choice can be made. I don't know about you, but I have often confronted in myself an unwillingness or some sort of inability to believe in Jesus. To, to claim him, to receive him. Even wondered, what would it take for me to really see him as who the, the Bible claims that he is and to embrace that fully? What would that even look like? Maybe you're there. What verse 13 tells us is that what it will take is not your willpower. You can't just sort of hunker down and believe by the strength of your own sort of self-mastery. It doesn't work that way. It won't come because of the power of your intellect. I don't care how smart you are. You cannot think your way into receiving Jesus. It won't come because of the power that you hold in your job or because of the success that you've known. There is one power and one power only that can explain why some people accept Jesus while others don't. And that is the power of God. Being born of God comes as a gift and only ever and always as a gift. Those who receive him, those that verse 12 are talking about, those who have the right to become children of God are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's the point. Owning Jesus, believing he is who he claims to be, taking advantage of his promise to you of light and life, That only comes to those who enter this journey, the journey John will take us on, with humility and prayer. It only comes when God's Spirit overcomes what our hearts love with a new sense, a new taste, a new set of affections for the things that He promises us over the things of this world. And the encouragement here is that because it comes from God, there is not one of you out there who can't taste this, who can't come to know it who can't receive him. I don't care who you are, what your background is, or how hard you find it now to believe in Jesus. God has the power to help you believe. It comes as encouragement to those of us who have people that we love in our lives, that we want to see trust in Jesus and just can't get through. God has the power to give them new birth. The key is the Spirit, not our ability to to convince them to believe. Trust in him. He can do it. What it means is this, though. That as we, ourselves, as a congregation, as individuals, as individuals with people outside of our congregation, as we go through this journey in the life of Jesus, as we look to Him through John, there's only one way to take that journey, and that is by prayer. We've got to pray to Him for life, for eyes to see, for hearts to love what we see. We've got to pray to him if you're not sure that Jesus is for you this morning and you really want to be sure and you just can't make yourself sure then here's your move you've got one move you've got to pray because only God can give you new birth maybe you're a follower of Jesus but you're not experiencing the fullness of his promise to you that in him there is life that darkness cannot overcome you want to experience that fullness you got one move one move only. Pray to Him. Pray to Him because He has that power and no one else does. There is no one who is beyond the reach of Jesus because the God who made us has the power to remake us. That's why He came here. So we pray to Him now. Father, we pray that You would give us the birth that we need in order to see the light that Christ shines on us. We know what darkness is. We've tasted that. We've had enough. What we want is the light that darkness can't overcome. Your word claims that that light is Jesus and that he is here for the taking for all who will receive him. So help us. Help us by your spirit to grab hold of him through faith, to be born of God, Only you are up to this task, so we leave ourselves to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.